Welcome, everybody, inside the outdoors on this Saturday morning. Well, we had another mixed bag as far as our weather this week, and apparently we're going to get some scattered showers again over the weekend. Of course we are. Showers on uh, Memorial Day and showers on the weekend and showers for the last month. It's just uh, we're not a desert state anymore, apparently, because uh, the amount of water that we've had is uh, certainly not indicative of being a desert state. But apparently we're only the second wettest spring on record to 2011. I found that out this this week. I don't know if that's supposed to be some kind of solace from the weatherman or not. If it is, it's not working. <laughs> I can tell you right now. But uh, anyway, we've got a big show today. We're going to talk, obviously, uh, that sounds like Ed Sullivan, for those old enough to remember the really big shoe. Anyway... Uh, um, we're going to talk fishing, a lot of fishing, and uh, it's that time of year when we probably should because waters will start to rise in terms of lake levels. They're already doing it, and our rivers and streams are, are moving water, are moving increasingly rapid and with this uh, these temperatures warming up the way they have the last couple of days it's going to be even more so in the next few weeks but the fish are biting as well and that's one of the uh, one of the good things so we're going to talk a lot of fishing today and uh, maybe give you some ideas again on where to go. Uh, but also, we've got an interesting story that uh, uh, that I found out about a couple of weeks ago from the Trout Unlimited guys. And I've got Brett Prettyman from uh, Trout Unlimited with us this morning to join us to tell us about kind of a new program. Now, we know about the Slam. And I know Brett was on a few weeks ago with uh, Andy Rasmussen when he filled in for me when I was on vacation. Um, and they talked, obviously, about the Utah Cutthroat Slam. But there's also a, a kind of a new wrinkle to it. And it goes Beyond the state of Utah, so um, I welcome Brett in the uh, in on the program to talk about this. And uh, Brett's kind of exciting because it's just an expansion, really, on the uh, Utah Slam, which I guess for those who don't know, we can kind of go over it real quickly and then tell them how the evolution, of what we're talking about today, fits into it. Yeah, hey, thanks uh, for having me, Steve. I really appreciate it. I, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about this new um, opportunity to go out and try to catch uh, native trout around the West. This is called the Western Native Trout Challenge, and it just was launched last week by the Western Native Trout Initiative, um, and which is a, it's a group of um, the wildlife biologists, fisheries biologists from 12 states in the West, Alaska, California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Utah, Washington. Washington and Wyoming. And what they do is they get together and talk about efforts to, um, you know, uh, promote and protect uh, native trout in their states. And this has been being talked about for probably five or six years. Uh, but when we launched the Utah Cutthroat Slam a couple of years ago, people were kind of, I think, kind of waiting to see how it went. And, um, and then they've been utilizing what the model of the Utah Slam is to help create this Western Native Trout Challenge, and it's it's pretty similar. Um, but I think that they felt like we had some good success with with our program, and 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 decided to you know dive in and do it themselves. So it's pretty exciting. It's it's pretty comprehensive, and it it really is a challenge. Now the the uh, cutthroat slam for those the, the uninitiated, uh, it's basically Utah's native cutthroat fishery, um, and to catch one of each of the species that are uh, native to the state of Utah, and you register for it. When you get the uh, the slam, you get a medal, a medallion, and a certificate, and and it's just a, a neat accomplishment because it's not an easy thing to do. You've got to travel, especially for a couple of one in particular, one of the strains of uh, native cutthroat. Uh, you've got to make some effort to get there in the first place before you catch your fish 
Yeah, it's uh, it is a bit of a challenge, and um, but that's part of what we really like about it is that people are learning about uh, new new territory, places. A lot of people said, "I can't believe the places that this um, challenge has taken me." That the Utah Cutthroat Slam has taken me. I really enjoy fishing new water, and really, it's just an excuse to you know go fishing, which we all need, right? So, <laughs> absolutely. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the Yellowstone Cutthroat in Utah is is, is the hardest. Specifically, because it is a, a haul for most people to get out to do. Um, you know, we've had some pretty good success right so far. Um, we've had we have over 1,700 people um, who've registered for the slam from 39 different states, including Hawaii. Um, and basically, what they do is you pay $20 unless you're a youth, and then you pay 10, and you do that before you start, and then you um, go out and you have to catch these fish in their native range, and that's a bit of a challenge. And I, something that I knew was going to draw some questions, I, I, and I was pretty sure specifically that we'd have questions about Strawberry Reservoir. Yeah. And sure enough, about once a month, I get a an email or a call from somebody who says, I caught a great fish, a great cutthroat up at Strawberry. Which fish can I cross off the list? And, a and great, it's, great it's fish. An that's the only – you can cross off, I caught a great yeah, fish. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's what I, I always say. I said, hey, that's a beautiful fish, great job. Unfortunately, it won't count for the, for the Utah Cutthroat Slam because that's a – technically a Bear River cutthroat in uh, Colorado River drainage. Um, <laughs> and so we, we can't count it because it's not its historic range. And it, it gives us an opportunity to talk about the management benefits of having a Bear River previously known by most people as a Bear Lake cutthroat. Right. Um, and they, they evolved with Utah Chub, which are the problem fish at Strawberry. And so they're better at, at managing that Utah Chub population than the Colorado River cutthroat. So it's, it's, a, it's a way to, you know, focus on, on how management is done and, and why there are fish that aren't necessarily in their home range in certain places. So it's fun that way. And, uh, you know, we've had, uh, we're at 382 completions now. We've raised more than $30,000 for conservation projects, and we've done more than 12 projects, and, and each each of the species has been represented. So basically the next step is this Western Native Trout Challenge, and, and there's three levels of it. Um, and it, it involves um, – there's one called the expert caster, so you have to catch six trout species across four states. Um, then you move up to the advanced caster, which is 12 trout species across eight states. Wow. And then the master caster is 18 species across 12 states. So um, it's it's pretty serious. Um, there are 21 species recognized. Now, some of them we, we can't fish for all the time because they are um, very limited populations of cutthroat, and they... You know, there's certain states that say you can't fish for them right now, um, but you can, you know, maybe in a couple of years. So that's why we don't make it all 21 species. Um, that's a challenge, though. I mean, even yeah, 12, that, sure. that is an amazing yeah. challenge. It really is. And, and um, it, uh, it's, it's exciting to hear. I talked to the organizer through the Western Native Trout Initiative um, the weekend after it launched, and she already had 100 people who'd registered for it. Wow. So that's, that's exciting, and um, you know we're, we're thrilled to Trout Unlimited to be a part of it. Um, the Division of Wildlife, of course, is involved with it um, as far as... Now, the thing that's kind of cool about it, too, as you mentioned, is that if you catch, you can go out and do your Utah Cutthroat Slam, 
and you can be catching species for the Western native trout challenge at the same time. So kind of two for the price of one type of thing. So um, it's a great opportunity to do that. And then, of course, the you know when we created the Utah Cutthroat Slam, we loosely based it on the very successful Wyoming Cut, Cut Slam, which has been going on for, I think it's about 23 years now. Um, and Trout Unlimited just joined with um, Wyoming last year to create a medallion for that program as well. So, um, same thing. You could do the Utah Slam and catch some fish, then you could go to Wyoming and catch some. Nevada has a native trout or a native species slam. So, there's there's some good opportunities to double up when you're doing this and make it even kind of more fun. What's the cost to register for the Western species, and, and then how do they register? Where do they go to register for it? Yeah, so the, it's $25 for um, adults 18 and older, and kids under 17 are free. So, um, and just like with the Utah Slam, there's no limitation on the time frame. A lot of people think, oh, it's a challenge, it's a slam, I got to do it in, you know, 24 hours, I got to do it in, a, in the summer, I got to do it in a calendar year type of thing. That's not the case. We want people to experience this um, at their own pace. And if it takes you a lifetime, if it takes you three years, whatever it takes you to do it, then that's when you should do it. Uh, what we suggest to people is, you know, register now. And if you find yourself fishing, um, then you can start counting those fish for the slam right away. Uh, we, we have had people who've done it in one day. Um, uh, it's We have had people who've done it, I think the most now is a guy's done it seven times. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, the w- one guy I know who did it here in Utah just really focused on trying to catch them in different places each time, which I really appreciated because he really was expanding his fishing horizon. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and testing new waters. So that was cool. And then, of course, there's the people who say, I'm going to catch them all on the same fly. Not just the same pattern, but <laughs> same the exact, exact same fly, fly, which is kind of fun. So there's all these kind of different things you can do. Um, the other thing that we find is really funny is that people end up um, hearing that their buddy did the slam, and then they're like, hey, you did that. Now you got to guide me to do it. And then the person's <laughs> like, well, gosh, if I'm going to be hitting all those waters again, I might as well do it again. Yeah. So, and that's great. Then you have the medallion, you get two medallions, and then you can display both sides of the medallion in a frame or whatever. But back to your question. So the, it's, if you visit westernnativetroutchallenge.org, then you can get all the information you need to start the challenge. There's a little uh, kind of informational video that you watch, uh, and that tells you about the different species and, you know, how to protect them and, and how to, you know, uh, handle fish properly and that kind of stuff. And then, and then you get to the form where you fill out your registration. So yeah, Western native trout org is, is the way. And I think that if you go to any of the, um, states that are participating in the slam that you'll find links to this, to the Western native trout challenge. Um, I get them confused often, um, <laughs> then on their websites as well. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. And, and I'm looking forward to getting started. Well, you guys do such a great job at Trout Unlimited, and, and, you know, this is a fun opportunity to maybe add a little spice to the fishing, too. If, you know, if you're getting tired of catching hundreds of fish a year, uh, maybe targeting the fish and trying to do it. <laughs> or if you're getting tired of continually doing the Utah Slam, for those of you who've done it seven times, um, right. you know, to, to do it. I can't imagine doing it in a day because the travel distances um, are, are certainly somewhat challenging as well. But to do it in one day is... Uh, is quite an accomplishment. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's you can limit it to mostly northern Utah. Yeah, um, and many people do um, get the Bear River and the Bonneville and the Colorado River in pretty close proximity. You could get those done in about maybe six hours if you're really you know if pushing you it and really have a plan. Um, but then you got about a three four hour drive over to the Raft River Mountains in the northwest corner of the state to catch the Yellowstone. Yeah, and and then you know so. What we find is people who try to do it in a day will um, usually, I think, start um, out on the raft rivers, so they'll spend the night, um, and then the first thing in the morning, they'll go out and try to catch Yellowstone, and then they'll take off once they have one and and go after the others, or they do it in reverse. Um, so, yeah, it's it's possible. I, I, I don't think I'm to that point where I feel like I need to do it like that. I want to savor it. I want to appreciate the opportunity to be in a new place and, and great waters. And, you know, this is beautiful country, all of it. And there's some really cool places to visit. So I'm not going to be in a hurry to, to do any of the slams. That's I'm right. Soak them up as I go. You don't rush through a chocolate bar. That's right. right? You savor, savor the flavors. That's right. <laughs> hey, Brett, thanks for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. We'll look forward to talking with you guys more as the summer progresses. I'll be interested to see how you're coming along with your uh, with your slam progression as well, or your, I guess, okay. your Western <laughs> States uh, uh, challenge. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate it. Good to talk to you, Brett. You too, Steve. Take care. Check that out, guys. I'll tell you what. That's uh, that. That sounds like a heck of a lot of fun, and especially if you've already conquered the uh, the Utah. I conquered. I hate to say it that way. If you've already experienced and enjoyed accomplishing, there you go. The Utah Slam. This might be kind of fun too. I'll tell you. You've got to be a pretty good fisherman to be able. It's not just a matter of getting to those places. It's a matter of uh, catching the fish too, uh, and that's obviously the fun part. But to do it throughout the West with all these states uh, has got to be a an extra special treat and when you accomplish it it really is something special listen we're going to step aside uh, when we come back we will be talking uh, we'll be talking all things fishing still as uh, Inside the Outdoors continues on this Saturday morning and we continue on this Saturday morning with Inside the Outdoors welcome back everybody we're going to start talking uh, even more fishing. Just that opportunity to talk with Brett about the um, about the Western States uh, kind of fishing challenge. Sounds like a lot of fun with the native fishery uh, throughout the Western States. But closer to home for those who, uh, well, right now, at least, are going to be fishing mostly still waters, I assume. We bring in George Summer for our weekly uh, fishing report. And, George, uh, <laughs> some decent fishing right now, but it's been tough because this weather still can't decide to stabilize. But I guess we're looking at the week ahead with some 70s and 80s along the Wasatch Front and even warmer down uh, down south. So I'm sure things will be popping here pretty quick. I know the Russian olives are, which is my, you know, people hate that tree. A lot of people hate it. To me, it's one of the sweetest smells in nature. So I'm uh, I'm a happy camper this weekend when that comes out. But it does mean that we're going to start getting some warming waters and some things are finally, hopefully going to continue to uh, to stabilize and warm up and, and turn our fish on even more. But right now, some, some fish have started, especially the kokanee in places, and that makes a lot of anglers real happy in this state exactly you know that's that seems to be the bright spot right now is is kokanee fishing at jordanelle and at at, uh, strawberry um you know and i haven't heard of any of the other you know kokanee places really picking up as much as uh 
as those two places have. So they're a little deeper than, than I'd expected, and I don't know if that has to do with the weather. Um, they've been anywhere from 25 to about 40 feet deep. Um, but uh, people are doing real well catching kokanee, especially at Jordan Hill, which is a nice close place go. Yeah, absolutely. Nice close place to go to catch kokanee, and there's a bunch of other fishing cats, including tiger muskies. There's some nice tigers been coming out of there too. I'm I'm amazed at some of the size this year. They have uh, they've obviously been feasting quite well. They they have been, you know, and there, there's been a lot of small. Um, smallmouth and other species uh, for them to feed on. And, and that was the goal with that program is to be able to, to get rid of some of the little stunted fish so we have bigger fish to catch. And, and it seems to be working. And, you know, those tiger muskies, uh, they, they're, they're an opportunity for a bunch of other places as well to help maintain those, uh, um, get rid of those little fish, I guess is the way to put it. Yeah, and it's one of the great management ways. I mean, how much uh, better of a win-win can you get than the management tool you're using is a heck of a fun fish to catch itself. Exactly. And so, you know, that's, that's where Jordan L's kind of a, a nice, because you can go up there and catch trout, you can catch uh, kokanee, salmon, you can catch tiger muskies, you can catch bass. Um, there's a... Uh, uh, what else is in there? There's some wipers in there, mm-hmm. yep. perch. So and it and it's close to home. Um, so you know people ought to take advantage of that while it's good. And then uh, once things warm up, then we'll probably have a little competition from water skiers and other things. But uh, <laughs> now's the time. Now's a good time to get out and go. And we've got that good weather coming up next week. And. I'm going to get out and go someplace. I don't know where yet. But, but you're going. going. Well, the other yeah. thing, too, is, is Flaming Gorge has started. It's slow because, obviously, of the, uh, the weather situation and temperatures. But uh, once that gorge kicks in, this is, uh, should be a banner year again. That has become such a great fish. Everything that, that goes in there, uh, some that we want, some that we don't, but everything that goes in there yep. seems to grow so well. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's a lot of them, it seems like. You know, the, the bass fishing up north is a little tough, and they're going to do a, a transplant project uh, at the end of June to help that out. You know, take some uh, smaller fish from Utah and put them into Wyoming. But, um, you know, there's a, the kokanee fishing at the gorge. That's hard to beat when it's on, and it's got to be really, really close. I haven't got any real good recent reports, but... You know, when you're talking big fish, that's the place for big kokanee. Well, we get this uh, we get we get this weather to stabilize and get warm again, uh, again. Well, yeah, actually, it was it was warmer six weeks ago <laughs> than it is now. But if it starts to warm up and stays that way, uh, it is going to be a real interesting season, I think, as far as the the fisheries are concerned, because these these reservoirs are near full pool, a lot of them, and we're going to have some new areas of the uh, reservoir to fish, and that obviously is going to be good for the uh, for the population as well. Exactly. Uh, and now, you know, we've we got this string of good weather coming up that they're predicting. And hopefully they got it right. That's the time to get out and go because um, it's uh, we keep saying it, but we're right on the edge. Yeah. As long as it doesn't rain again, I, I think we're going to be there. Yeah, I agree. I think that's going to be the case. Well, listen, George, we'll let you run. Thanks again for taking the time this morning, and uh, we'll look forward to your firsthand in-the-field R&R for, uh, uh, well, R&R and R&D, I guess. Hopefully it's a little R&R, but certainly some research and development, and we'll check on that next Saturday with you, okay? Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. All right, thanks. That's George Sommer with our fishing report. Oh, we know what that is. Yes, the Ginger Ninja... Canelo himself is ready to rock and roll with us again. Gary Winterton, 
Mr. Hooked on Utah. GW, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing fantastic because we've had a little more sun this week than we're used to. <laughs> well, and that has translated into a little more fishing success for you this week. Absolutely. Man, it's so good. To, I don't know how people can live in areas of the country with continual rain. I was ready to do something crazy. Well, you know what it is, is they expect it. When it when it's expected, you learn to live with something. But when it's a surprise, and for us as a quote-unquote desert state, this is not the norm, as is uh, obviously evidenced by the, the near-record numbers. Um, but uh, I'm glad it looks like we've got most of it in our rearview mirror anyway. Yeah, which is great. And, you know, it's neat that we've got it. Kind of side note, my wife, Julie, um, is the uh, watcher of the snowpack reports. And so every day she's like, the sand pitch is 17,000% of, of normal. So I'm like, so does that mean we run the sprinklers nonstop? What do we do there? I don't know. Well, it is. it should save you a little bit of money, hopefully, on the water side of things. But it is going to help us, uh, no doubt about it. I think uh, we're going to have an opportunity to, to launch our boats maybe a little later in the season. And speaking of which, you got a chance to break in your brand-new boat this week. Not the six-week-old new boat, the new new boat. I know. How cool is that? So Rogers Performance Marine calls me up and says, hey, someone wants to buy your... 2075 Tyee Magnum that I've been in a couple of times, and uh, how awesome. So someone bought that boat, and I got a brand-new 2019 Pro-V 1975 with, you know, loaded to the hilt with everything. And we took it to Deer Creek this week and had the opportunity to go up and, and do some fishing. And now you and I went out in the Magnum Tyee earlier in the year when all the crazy rain started, and uh, we actually went twice. And it was just brutally tough. And you know what? Things have turned because I had some Steve Brown mojo with me, and we ended up catching a lot of fish on various trolling techniques. Well, you might have had the mojo, but you didn't have Steve Brown, and maybe that was the difference because the twice that we went, you're right. Now, I should hasten to say, though, that the time before you and I went, Huey and I caught a bunch of fish, so I don't know what the uh, the common denominator is other than the fact of constant rain this spring. That's probably about the common denominator so far. Either that or when they waxed the boat, the boat wax had banana wax in it or something. <laughs> it could, could very well. Man. So, no, you know, we did a couple of new things, Steve, this week that I wanted to try to see if, um, you know, you can get away from some of the standard trolling lures. So... Uh, you're going to see on our show tonight that, you know what, I, I trolled some interesting stuff. I did downriggers, and I used your tried-and-true um, hoochie squid, kept with the night crawler, and that produced fish left and right. Then I used a max wedding ring spinner for you'd use for kokanee and trout with a little night crawler. Those are just consistent as all get out. But on my surface lures, as you know, I like to pull a Lucky Craft Pointer 78, and I decided... I was going to do something different. So on one of the surface rods, I ran a crankbait, a little crystal Rapala minnow that dives down about five, six feet. And then on the other one, are you ready for it? I ran a rattle trap, a bass bait what? rattle trap. <laughs> yep. That's and crazy. Let me tell you, the rattle trap killed it. Both of them. Those rainbows were attacking that rattle trap with a vengeance. And it was a perch-colored rattle trap. So, you know, it's just going straight and rattling. And I think the BBs and all that noise and that real quick side-to-side -side motion, 
I would put that rod in, get it, I'd cast it way back there, get it all set up, sit down, and pow, that rod would go off. And it was so exciting to see that these different baits um, were producing fish. And what it, what it really solidified in my mind, Steve, is we get locked into uh, to kind of one or two things that we think will work when the reality is you can probably cross over and catch bass with all your trout stuff and vice versa. In fact, a couple of weeks ago when we aired our strawberry show, um, I caught a nice cutthroat on what's called a scrounger head, which is a total bass jig head with a big old bill on it and a super fluke on it that you throw to bass. And this is supposed to be drug along the bottom, and I caught a nice cutthroat on that. So what I'm learning from this is that all you got to do is present them with a life lifelike presentation. Size, I think, matters in terms of what they're keying on in the water. And, and these predatory fish, whether they're browns, cuts, or bows, they're going to attack it. Well, I agree. I, it's a it's kind of universal throughout nature, isn't it? That when something is hungry, uh, it'll eat. And so, you know, and other times, if you've just finished a big meal, it doesn't matter how good the the dessert looks. You probably don't have room for it. So, if you present them something that looks like food, and they're in an eating mood, chances are you're going to catch a fish. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, I wouldn't be afraid to troll. Um, different baits. If you're not having success, man, dig in the box, pull something out that you would say, there's no way I should catch fish on this and troll it. And I'll, and I would be surprised if you don't. So Steve, you and I, I got to tell you this, the craziest thing. So the day that we were on the water is when that tanker flipped over and went into Deer Creek. And literally an hour before that, Wyatt, my camera guy, asked me, you know, do you think anybody's ever driven off the road and gone into the lake? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure it's happened. When we were pulling the boat out, that's right when the traffic was starting to back up. And somehow we must have been on the other side of the island when this happened because this guy went in the water one corner before the island, and we didn't see it. But that tanker shot right off the road into the water. We were there and just missed it in minutes. That is wild. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how well a butane bait works. I, a rattle trap I can buy, but I'm not sure what butane is going to do to the fish population in that area, if anything. And I, I just don't know. But I know they're pumping it out, but, but is that going to be lethal to fish? Is it going to be diffused enough that there's not an issue, at least in that area? I, I don't know. But it'll be interesting to see if there is any, uh, any fish kill right after that by the time they've got it all finished and then accounted for yeah and, and it I'm, i think butane is lighter than water so what you got to hope is it surface it evaporates yeah um there's no residual oils in the water but i probably would hold off consuming too much fish from deer creek for a little while yeah so but, get a little bit of, of input on what the deal is well and i certainly wouldn't consume fish and eat beans at the same time i mean if you're going to do no. one, if you're going to eat the fish out of there forego the baked beans for a while okay because in combination, that could be a real bad, a real bad uh, grouping. Yeah, that would be a, that could be a dangerous for sure. <laughs> so, so tonight it's Deer Creek with your brand new boat. Yeah, tonight's Deer Creek's going to be awesome, and uh, I think you guys will love the techniques. We had a really good time, and and hopefully over the next couple of weeks, it's sun, fun, and more fishing. You got that right, buddy. Hey, thanks. It's always good to talk to you, and uh, I'm still waiting by my phone, but I have to check out your new boat now. All right. I will call you, I promise, in the next day or so. We'll set a time for you to come out and uh, jump in the boat. We'll go someplace new. I'll bring the bananas.
Oh, gosh. You're not invited. <laughs> Talk to you later, buddy. <laughs> All right. See you. Bye. All right. 11.05 tonight. It's Gary Winterton hooked on Utah, fishing Deer Creek, catching fish on a rattle trap. You got to see this. I've got to see this because uh, because I would have said that it probably, I, not that it couldn't have worked, but uh, to the degree that he's describing, I'd be greatly surprised. But I guess the proof is going to be in the video. However, Wyatt is a creative photographer. He makes him look good every week, so you know that he's got some real creativity. So that's 11.05 tonight, uh, KUTV Channel 2, right after talking sports. It is Hooked on Utah. Okay, uh, we're going to step aside when we come back. Got a real interesting story for you. Uh, we're going to take a step aside from the geese, uh, from the geese, from the fish, and we're going to just gave it away. We're going to talk about geese. Why will we be talking about geese at this time of year? It's not goose hunting season. Uh, it's not exactly the time when they're in the flyway, supposedly. Well, they're creating some problems, as any golfer and greenskeeper on a golf course knows, and some other folks as well, farmers. What do we do about them? We'll visit with someone at the state of Utah who's responsible in large measure for helping solve that problem. And that's right after this, when we come back with our final segment of Inside the Outdoors. And welcome back, everybody, Inside the Outdoors on this Saturday morning. Well, we've been talking a lot of fishing and I guess that's uh, that's only to be expected given the time of year it is. And the fact that we finally, maybe, gotten some weather where we can get out on the water. Streams are still pretty swollen. I'm sure you want to stay away from most moving water unless you're going to fish some back eddies. But as far as the... Uh, as far as the uh, still waters are concerned, boy, we've had some great fishing, as you found out throughout the, the show. But there's an interesting uh, story developing right now and kind of ongoing that this, this timing for this weekend is perfect for us to talk about it. And so we welcome in the Assistant Wildlife Section Chief Blair Stringham from the Division of Wildlife Resources with us to talk about maybe something this time of year that we wouldn't normally think about, but that's geese. Now, it's obviously not goose season, and... Uh, uh, there are a lot of resident populations of geese in this state. But we were just uh, Blair and I were talking earlier in the week and when setting up the interview, and uh, how things have changed as far as the uh, as far as the geese population, the goose population in this state over the last say twenty years or so. Uh, I remember when I was uh, a lot younger, Blair, that uh, you know finding geese in the state was not like it is right now. I mean, they're on golf courses. Anybody who plays golf knows what our goose population has done. So first. Welcome to the show. And secondly, uh, what do we do? This population is just exploding. Yes, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you this morning, Steve. Um, it has. It's It's gone from 50 years ago where you rarely ever saw a Canada goose to now where you can see one every day of the year anywhere throughout the state of Utah <laughs> and really throughout the continent. Yeah, and, and, and when we, before we get started, let's. I want to point something out. Uh, Blair called them Canada geese, and that's what they are. They're not Canadian geese. <laughs> they're they're Canada yeah. geese. Okay, and there is a difference. Uh, one is a possessive, and the other is a species. So um, we've got greater, and we've got lesser here in this state, and we've got a lot of them, as you've just pointed out. So. What kind of problems? I mean, this is a federally managed bird because they're obviously migratory, and yet you've got to manage them within the confines of a state. What kind of problems does that present for you when it comes to management and then what you can and can't do? It does create a lot of challenges. as They fall under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is an agreement between essentially Canada, United States, and Mexico. 
they all have different interests in maintaining Canada geese as a species because they all want to have them around. And so it creates a lot of challenges for us because we can't go out there and just do whatever we want to do like we could with a mule deer or a pheasant. So we have to have agreement by both the United States government as well as do things that fall within the parameters of that treaty or if we get ourselves in trouble. So it, it gets a little difficult at times, but most of the partners are understanding that there are issues associated with Canada geese, and if we all work together, we can still have plenty of them and address those issues as well. You know, the old adage that uh, the geese and ducks fly south for the winter uh, still holds true to some extent, but we have so many resident populations of geese now in this state. What What's the reason? I guess the reason that they decided not to keep doing that, is it just simply sheer numbers that uh, they found a nice place to live, or is there something else going on? Yeah, it's probably a little bit of a multiple factors. Uh, for one, I mean, we just are creating a lot better habitats for wildlife in general um, is, you know, throughout our cities, we have a lot of open water that ordinarily would have frozen 100 years ago. And so we're keeping things like that available. And we have golf courses and things like that now that are providing feed. And so the habitat itself has changed quite a bit through our actions that are keeping wildlife farther north now than they did previously. The other thing is just the this climate for the last probably 20 years or so has been warmer. And so birds are migrating farther south. Um, they're also setting up shop and just not really leaving like uh, with our Canada geese. I mean, they'll stay here year-round, and they find areas where they can find food in the winter and food in the spring and summer. So really all their needs are met in the state of Utah in Salt Lake Valley, for instance. And so why leave if you have everything you need here? Let me ask you this then. So because the, the population has exploded and because there's a resident population, uh, as we talked about, those geese are federally and internationally regulated because of the uh, because of the migratory nature of them. What does this say for the future? I mean, is there going to be a time when we're going to have to do some things either with harvest or or le- relocations or whatever? How do we how do we address this thing if it continues to burgeon the way it does? Yeah, we, we've tried a variety of different things, and we've adjusted our Canada goose season in the last probably five to ten years to be a little bit later in the year. Um, that allows us to, to target birds that are wintering here and, and that are causing issues. Um, we've made the seasons earlier as well, and we used to traditionally start our seasons in October, and many of the states around us are starting their seasons at the first part of September now uh, to address the resident Canada goose issues. Um, we've also done a variety of things to just move Canada geese to other parts of the state or the country or, or things like that through hazing. Um, we go out and we actually collect geese in Salt Lake Valley and we'll take them to other parts of the state where they're less of a nuisance just to get them off of the golf courses and parks and things like that. So we've tried just a variety of different techniques, um, both lethal and non-lethal, lethal to try to address Canada goose populations and some of them work better than others and throughout the year some of them work better than others and <laughs> kind of a learning experience for all of us because it is a relatively new problem but we're slowly feel like we're getting a handle on it and making some headway in in all those areas so it, it'll continue to be a challenge but we're trying to work on it and do that as a wildlife management agency now i guess you're unless you're a farmer or a greens uh, keeper at a golf course it's probably a good good problem to have because of the uh, because of the, just the population but you're going to you're going to do something this week in fact aren't you that uh, in terms of harvesting and and moving geese uh, around to try and kind of defray some of the problems that we've got right now 
Yeah, we were getting to the point in the mid-2000s where we had thousands of Canada geese that were nesting and living within Salt Lake Valley throughout the entire year. So about 2006, we started going around to golf courses and parks and actually catching the geese. Um, they go through a flightless period this time of year, starting about the end of May through about the end of June, where they replace all their flight feathers. And so during that time, they can't fly. And so it's a good opportunity for us to go out there and we'll round them up in nets and have a big group of volunteers with us to try to catch those birds. And then we take them to other parts of the state, um, up north, up by Cache Valley and up by Tremont. Uh, we take quite a few of them down by Delta and We've even taken some all the way to the Utah-Colorado border. Those are the ones that we really don't want to come back. And <laughs> we try to just get them out of the area and try to let them live their life somewhere else rather than having to lethally remove those birds. You know, I, I, when I talk to people who especially seem to see them on the golf course in places like that or see them congested, uh, they always ask, why don't they just raise the limit? Why don't they just you know harvest more during a hunt um is that something that i know you can't do it unilaterally is that something though that can be done as a management tool down the line is to change the harvest numbers or is that something that because of the red tape and the interagency uh, cooperation and international cooperation needed that just doesn't work yeah so there's some things we could continue to do um, we have relaxed our season dates a little bit and we've also increased the bag limit the Migratory Bird Treaty Act doesn't allow us to hunt them outside of essentially September 1st as a beginning date and March 10th as an end date. And then within that time period, you can only hunt them for 107 days. And so we've tried to structure our goose hunts to be around those periods when we have the majority of birds that are causing problems and the most number of geese in the state. And so from a harvest perspective, I mean, we could probably adjust our seasons a little bit more or increase bag limits, but we're getting to the point now where we're kind of tapped out on that resource. Yeah. So we've looked for alternative ways, such as hazing or the relocation program. It's just another means to move birds out of our problem areas um, and try to address those issues. Our um, other a lot of times they're a real localized issue, but um, sometimes it's, it's a big population issue as well. And so we use hunting as a tool and many other things as a tool to try to manage our populations. Well, I was going to ask you, are other states and different flyways experiencing the same kind of issues? Is this just something as we continue to uh, uh, to gobble up places where they might have sat on a river unmolested and now we build a golf course adjacent to it? They're still going to sit there, uh, and it's just that now we have to deal with uh, with waste and things of that nature? Or is this somewhat indigenous to our flyway and, and our area here? Hey, it's really just a continent-wide problem, and we're kind of a latecomer to this. I'm back on the East Coast, and they've been dealing with stuff like this for a lot longer than we have, and a lot of it's just the development that goes on as more and more urban population centers have grown up, you know, raised up. It's replaced a lot of those natural wetlands where the birds would be, and it's also just created these little habitats that are perfect for a goose, and they've got all the feed they need on that green grass that we grow, the ponds and rivers throughout the valley. And just the protection from predators or hunters, I mean, it really provides everything they need. And so they've keyed in on those areas. And over time, you know, they used to be to where they would migrate there and stay there through the winter and then go back north and breed. And a lot of those birds have realized there's no reason to leave if we've got all our needs here. So it's, we've, in many ways, have created the problem for ourselves um, through just building nice places for 
us as well as the geese. Make it nice for them to be here. So in terms of uh, in terms of the future, as we look, I mean, we're not going to lose development probably. It's going to be a recurring problem, and it looks like as if the past is any indication that the future is going to be much more of the same. Where does it go? Where do, where do we see? What's the end game here? I think a lot of it's just going to be trying to just maintain um, the programs that we have now. Um, our urban goose relocation program, since we started it in the mid-2000s, we've reduced the population of Canada geese within Salt Lake Valley from three or four, 5,000 geese down to a pretty manageable number now. Um, we used to catch several thousand geese every summer. Now we usually catch less than 1,000. So we're kind of in a maintenance mode now as far as Salt Lake Valley is concerned, but we're seeing more problems in Utah County. They're starting to move up into Davis, Weaver County, and so... I assume we'll continue to do programs like this where we can try to keep the birds at least at a manageable level because it's going to be a long-term problem. I mean, there's not an easy fix to them. If we went through and moved any every goose in the whole state, there'd probably be more that would come back and replace them. So at this point, we're just trying to keep it manageable, keep greens managers happy and keep park managers happy and just trying to help people to live with the geese yeah what's the what's the primary predator right now besides hunters for canada geese in our state um really they don't have as many predators as something like a pheasant or a duckwood um there's a few avian predators that'll take geese like sometimes eagles will grab them um coyotes are oftentimes a predator on geese um and then humans are probably the biggest predator we we shoot quite a few geese here in our state, so we're probably the number one predator as far as geese are concerned. And and talk to me a little bit about this week and what you're doing, and the, you kind of invite the public if they want to come and help, right? We do, yep. So we'll be going around to different locations throughout Salt Lake Valley beginning on Monday, and we do it for a full week, uh, and we publish a schedule on uh, several different websites. One will be our Division of Wildlife webpage, and we also put some things on our Facebook page on um, Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. And that'll have our starting location each day. Um, we generally start at one of the bigger golf courses or park complexes in the valley. And we encourage anybody to come out with us and, and participate. Um, if you're a dedicated hunter, you can get service hours. Or if you want to just come out and handle geese, um, a lot of the kids enjoy it because they can hold the little goslings and get some picture opportunities with them. And it's just a real good opportunity to, to get some help, which we need for this project, as well as for people to have a hands-on wildlife experience and learn more about the problem and kind of experience it firsthand and have some fun while they're doing all that. Well, it sounds great, Blair. And, uh, again, we appreciate you joining us this morning. Um, I guess it beats putting up fence if you're a dedicated uh, sportsman. You, it's a lot more fun than, yeah. than maybe putting new fence posts in. Uh, but get out and do that, and I guess they can check your, your websites to find out and contact the division if they want to volunteer. Yep. Yeah, we, we can always use volunteers. Um, there's a lot of birds and a lot of hands. They're helpful, and you get geese running all over the place. <laughs> fun to run and grab them or hold them for us while we band them and so we can use all the people that want to come out and participate it sounds great well blair thanks again and uh you know you guys are doing something right because we've certainly got a good population and if we can just figure out how to herd them in the right direction we'll be all right 
yeah, it, it's a challenge, but we're up for it, and we all enjoy it. That's why we went to this field, so we'll keep trying to do our part and keep people happy and the geese happy. Sounds great. Thanks again. Blair Stringham with the uh, Divisional Wildlife Resources. Again, if you want to get involved in some of the geese relocation uh, efforts this week in the, in the coming week on Monday, beginning Monday in the uh, Salt Lake Valley, just check out the Utah Division's uh, website, um, wildlife.utah.gov. They'll have the schedules and the contact information, and it is kind of a fun way to uh, uh, to get involved and do some real good and uh, really help out. It'd be nice one of these days to get some of the folks from the uh, conservation groups, and I'm not talking about the the uh, the groups that uh, you know that hunt the geese because they, we're always the ones that wind up with either the finances or the time devoted. But some of the people who claim to be friends of wildlife, it'd be nice to see them out there, and uh, especially because a lot of us have got jobs and. Maybe some others don't have quite as much work to... Never mind. I, I'll, I'll leave that one alone. Hey, listen, um, thanks to my guests today. Um, thanks to Brett. Thanks to, uh, to Blair, to George, and to Gary. Thanks, most importantly, for you for listening. And remember, Utah Lake Festival going on this morning, beginning at 10 o'clock and goes till 2 this afternoon. Utah Lake State Park. Admission is free. All kinds of stuff going on. Now, they may have to uh, take some, uh, lee- kind of some leeways with the uh, scheduling because of the sailing and the weather, but um, it's not like it has been at least. So go out and check it out. They've got free sailing uh, on the lake. They've got some opportunities for um, educational things. They talk about the June Sucker Project and everything else. Just a good day to get out, and it's not far away. So uh, check it out. Utah Lake State Park and Utah Lake Festival uh, coming up today, 10 o'clock until 2. So until next week, take care, everybody. Get outdoors. I'll be along next Saturday morning, 8 to 9 on 97.5 The Zone. And as always, you have been warned.